It is good to be back with you this morning, and I am so grateful for the three weeks uh, that I had more time to work on other things here at the church, and you had some wonderful speakers. I'm grateful for Josh Lee and the job he did for us, Steve Springstead. Yeah, they deserve a great round of applause. I'm also thankful for this last weekend. I felt so energized and encouraged by the message from Jeff Lewis about disciple-making focus as Christians. And uh, it, it just, I think it's something we as a church need to hear, not just this church, but the church, that this is what God has for us. That's what it's all about. Today, uh, we are in the second half of 2 Corinthians 12, actually the second half of chapter 12, and we're beginning to wrap up uh, this wonderful book about relationships. And so if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, would you open them to 2 Corinthians 12, because in this second half of the book, Paul uh, invites us to continue to be transformed in our relationships. Uh, In fact, he models for us choices and thoughts about how to live when we are in a challenging relationship, and in particular with other believers. So he he shows us how we can be different from our culture uh, when there is... Uh, difficulty and challenge and, and prickliness. Is that even a word? I guess we could use that this morning. He shows us how to be in relationship with people that um, rub us the wrong way. And he helps us to know, for instance, how a single mom can respond to someone who unjustly criticizes her children. He tells us how, as a senior citizen, we can interact with people who are uh, impatient with us or, or thoughtless toward us. He speaks about uh, husbands and wives and how they can respond to each other when there's this feeling of demand or even demeaning in the relationship, or how a Christian in particular can interact with people who are uh, unyielding or even challenging in the relationship. As Paul gets into this section, I'd like to have us uh, pray for just a moment. I love the fact that we ended this first part of our worship with a song about the Holy Spirit. And Paul rests on the reality of the Spirit in this chapter. So would you join me for a moment, and let's ask God to open our hearts, to help our minds to absorb these truths, because what we're about to look at has the capacity to to truly change our relationships with other people. And we really, if we take it to heart, if we act it out, God will do things, great things in our lives. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we uh, underscore at times uh, the... Uh, necessity of the Holy Spirit. And this morning we're doing that in the life of Paul, who uh, says essentially in this passage, I am nothing, even though I, I am in no way less than these super apostles. And yet as I view myself in relationship to others, I am nothing. Because it is through my weakness that the power of God becomes evident. And Father, we pray this morning Uh, myself for my life, and each of us for our individual um, lives and relationships. God, help us to grasp these truths so that as we view ourselves in Christ, as we see that it requires the empowerment of Christ in all of our relationships, we can truly see transformation for ourselves in how we feel and think, and God, we can be transformative in the lives 
of everyone around us if we will simply follow Paul's model behavior and his choices and thoughts. So God, help us through the Holy Spirit to grasp these things. And as we do, Father, may we see a true difference in our lives and in how we interact with everyone around us. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul begins here in chapter 12 of 2 Corinthians, verse 11, and he, he begins with a simple thought, and he says, if we are to be transformed and we are to be transformative in our relationships, we need to do several things. We need, first of all, to unburden others by seeking them, not what they have and not what they can give. This is such a transformative truth for us. It's countercultural that we would unburden others in these difficult relationships. We would seek in some way to lift burdens from their lives by seeking them and not what they can give us, not what they have for us, not what we can get out of the relationship. Take a look at verses 11 through 14 of 2 Corinthians 12. Paul writes, I have been a fool. You forced me to it. Now, he's referring back to the boasting that they demanded of him to prove that he was equal with these super apostles that were in their church. He says, I've been foolish. You pushed me to it, for I ought to have been commended by you. I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I am nothing. You should underscore that in your Bibles or in your notes. Even though I am nothing. This is how he's viewing himself and how he's inviting us to view ourselves in these relationships. He says, I'm not inferior to thee, these apostles, but I do recognize there's something in my life, something about my life that says I need to be weak and nothing. Verse 12, he says, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience. I really put up with you guys. I patiently, diligently showed you my credentials as an apostle with signs and wonders and mighty works. For in what were you less favored than the rest of the churches, except I myself did not burden you? Forgive me this wrong. He's being sarcastic. Forgive me for not burdening you with this. Verse 14, he says, Here for the third time I'm ready to come to you. And notice this next phrase. And I will not be a burden, for I seek not what is yours, but you. The relationship is so much more important to me than anything I would get out of it. For children, he says, are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. So he says simply, right at the outgoing of this, this section, to be transformed and to be transformative in our relationships, challenging relationships with other believers, we have to seek them and not just what we can get. From them or have from them. He gives an analogy here of a parent or parents. And he says the job of a parent is to save up for their kids. Literally in the Greek it says to create a treasure trove for their children. So just as a parent doesn't look at their little child and say, uh, okay, bub, <laughs> it's, it's time for you to pulling your weight around here, to be pulling your weight. Uh, you're two years old now and, and time's a wasting. So your mom and I have set aside a savings account. We want you to begin putting in money there for our retirement funds. And uh, chop, chop, let's get to it. He says, parents don't do that. The job of a parent is to take care of their kids, provide for them, 
save for future education, maybe put money aside for a home down payment or whatever it might be. And he says, I see myself as your parent. And he literally was spiritually. He was their spiritual father. And he says, so even though I have a right as an apostle to be supported by you and all these other churches are kind of doing that for me, I'm not going to put that kind of burden on you. I'm not going to weight you down with it. In fact, the word burden literally means weighed down with demands. It means to go numb from supporting a heavy weight. If you've ever had uh, grandparents as a pretty good-sized grandchild on your lap, yeah, goes numb after a while. And he says it's also the weight of a deadbeat who sponges off others incessantly. He said, I'm not going to burden you with that. Instead, I'm going to come alongside you and lighten your load with generous assistance. I'm going to be the kind of person who pulls something heavy off of you and relieves you from that pressure. I'm going to seek your well-being and good. Now, interestingly for us, this is the same challenge that God gives every Christian with regard to other believers, to unburden them. Take a look in Galatians uh, 6.2, where Paul again writes, bear one another's burdens. And so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Now notice the parallels between 2 Corinthians 12 and Galatians 6. Here's the word burden again. And also here is this word nothing. Paul said, I am truly nothing in relationship to them when I think about God's empowerment. And as Christians, we are told, bear one another's burdens. And in doing so, you will fulfill the law of Christ. So what is that law? What is it that we're to be fulfilling as we unburden others? Something's happening here supernatural. It's the law of Christ that's at work in our lives when we do this. And he goes on to say, if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, you're just deceiving yourself. Well, this law is found in Philippians chapter 2. So you might take a minute and Hold your place in 2 Corinthians 12 and go to Philippians chapter 2, a very familiar passage for us where Paul says, again, Paul, verses 3 and 4, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more important, more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And then he gives us this tie-in. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Fulfill the law of Christ. Be this kind of person. Look at others, not ambition with ambition or selfishness to say, what can I get from them? What do they um, owe me? What do I want from them? But look at them as more important, more significant. Look out for their interests and not only your own. Don't think of yourself above others. 2 Corinthians 12, 11, Paul applies this to himself, and he says, for I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I am nothing. So is he saying here that he's really just a big fat zero? There is nothing about him that is of any value? No, not at all. He says, I wasn't inferior to these guys. I did the signs and wonders and mighty deeds of an apostle. My word comes straight from God. But there's something about the way I'm living that is important to transformative relationships. How might that single mom respond to someone who unjustly criticizes her children if she's operating out of her own strength? 
Well, you can imagine that. How might that senior citizen respond to someone who is impatient with them or thoughtless toward them if they're acting out of their own natural tendencies? Well, we probably have seen that from time to time. I probably have acted that way from time to time. How might a husband or wife respond to each other in this demanding or even demeaning relationship if it's just a fleshly response? How does a Christian respond to someone who is unyielding or unchallenging if it's out of the flesh? Not well. And that's why Paul says for us here, we need to look at ourselves differently. We need to look at others differently. And we need to begin to unburden others because of the relationship, not what we get. So here's the thing. God offers to fill us up with his mighty power in these moments to act differently. And that's one of the keys of this first movement, this first sense of what Paul is telling us here. God wants to fill us up supernaturally to respond, not because of who we are, our training, our experiences, our personality, but because of who Jesus is, the law of Christ living through us. God is on a constant hunt for Christians who have emptied themselves of their pride, their self-will, their personal rights, so he can fill them with power. I brought with me this morning a simple illustration of that. I was thinking about it this week, and one of my favorite drinks is root beer. If you have a glass of water, which I'm often encouraged to drink at home by my family, and I think to myself, man, I'd rather have something flavorful and exciting and different, but I've got a glass full of water. What do I have to do if I want to fill it with my favorite non-water beverage, which is root beer? You've got to drink. You've got to empty the cup, right? So to please my wife this morning... Ah, thank you. Now for the really good stuff, right? No, 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 we're not going there. You, you wouldn't appreciate it. <laughs> and I want to stay filled with the Spirit of God. If you're going to be filled by something other than yourself, what do you have to do? You have to empty yourself. You have to say, I am nothing. And then the Spirit of God can fill us when we're cleansed and confessed and in relationship with Christ. That makes the difference. My wife and I are reading through a really good book right now called Living Reconciled. And on the back of it, it says, Conflict is inevitable. Reconciliation is possible. At the very back of this book is a 30-day devotional. And it was interesting as we've been preparing this message this week, we got to uh, day nine, so that tells you how far we in, are into this, and it was right about this filling, this empowering. It says, very few will die to self for another person who is a sinner or completely in the wrong in a conflict. However, Christ died for us while we were still sinners. Think about that for a moment. In his eternal plan... God sent his one and only son to die for sinners who were still sinning. What a clear demonstration of love. God is not willing to hold back his love simply because of our current state. That is powerful. 
Sure, we need to embrace the act of the gospel through faith and repentance, but even before we have taken those steps, God still loves us. In conflict, demonstrating our love is one of the most difficult actions to take. Would you agree with that? Yes. That is so difficult when we are in conflict to act lovingly. It's contrary to our nature, which is why Paul says you have to be nothing and let God fill you. He goes on to say, it is challenging to show patience to others, especially when big emotions are involved. It is not easy to generously overflow kindness in our every interaction, not being rude, not keeping a record of wrong. These are not natural. We may think we are doing well, but when the Holy Spirit knocks on our door and we realize we haven't succeeded as well as we thought, we must then change. So Paul says to us at the beginning of this section, there is a place where true power comes from. And it's not through an election process. It's not through uh, the outcome of feelings of well-being and of happiness. It's not sourced from some uh, personal strength or resource. True power in relationship comes through Jesus Christ, the law of Christ. Notice how in verses uh, 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10, that was last week. We'll put it up on the screen. He says, but God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Notice that. Think of that for a second. He says, if I'm going to boast in anything about who I am, I am going to boast gladly of my weaknesses so that his power may rest upon me. As I empty myself of all of my self-will, self-rightness, God can fill me. He says, for the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. How many of us can say that this morning? For when I am weak, I am content with weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions. He says, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Folks, it's only when Jesus indwells us and empowers us as we empty ourselves his Holy Spirit enters into us in a full sense. He dwells in us, but he has full access to us. Then we can unburden others in our relationships and Christian circles. We can forgive others when they are not forgiving us, and it's not warranted. We can care for others even when they have not cared for us. We can uh, give to others when others have a great need, regardless if they've ever helped us. We can pray for others who have treated us with spite. We can uh, come alongside others and uh, do it in practical ways when they've never done that for us. We can take a meal to someone else when they've never done that for us. Do you see how this works itself out? Look at verse 11 in your text. Paul reminds them of something we all feel, and he says, I ought to have been commended by you. That, that should have been the natural response because relationships should be mutual. They should be responsive, especially when I've been doing all the caring and, and carrying of you and, and loving you and giving to you. So it's natural to believe that when we invest in others, there should be that reciprocal and thoughtful response, right? We feel that way. Paul says, I have been doing amazing good things for you. Acts chapter 18 is the story of this chapter. It's his story of Corinth. And if you'd care to, you can look there. But I'm going to give you the backstory real quick. 
to show you Paul's investment in them. Verses 1 through 3, he arrives in Corinth. He meets another couple who also are tent makers. He moves in with them. They begin to make tents together. But then he goes to the local Jewish synagogue. And he begins to preach to every Sabbath to the Jews and to the Gentiles alike, seeking to persuade them, Jesus is your Messiah. Verses 5 and 6, he quickly hits a buzzsaw of opposition from the Jewish leaders. And they oppose him, they shout him down, they shove him out the door. And so he goes next door to a guy's house. And he begins to preach there, and it says that the, the leader of the synagogue, Crispus, interesting name, believes, and his whole family, and they move next door to the house. And Paul begins to preach just to people like you and me, just to the non-Jews at that point. And a lot of people are believing a lot of people are coming to faith in Christ, and the opposition stiffens to the point where Paul even believes, I probably am in threat, I need to leave. And that night, Jesus shows up to him in a vision, you see in verses 9 and 10, and he says to him two things. He says, Paul, don't be afraid. Now, this is the same Paul who's been stoned and shipwrecked and beaten and thrown out of every town he's gone into pretty much. And Jesus says, don't be afraid. I know this is a huge threat to you right now. You feel very threatened. But don't be afraid because I will be with you. I want you to keep on speaking. Don't be silent. For I have many people in town. Now, we should pause for a second and think about that. This is a little bit of a rabbit trail, but it's a good one. Paul has pretty much just arrived in Corinth. And he's had all this stiff opposition, this resentment, this bitterness, this controversy against him. And he's decided he may want to leave. He may need to leave. And God says, Jesus says, no, stay there because I have many people here in Corinth who need to hear this message. So keep on preaching. This is a great reminder that... When we faithfully speak about the gospel in Jesus to our friends and family, to our worlds, to the global world, when we get involved in all-in disciple-making, when we participate in Advent conspiracy, when we do these things, we're not doing it in a vacuum. Jesus has already, before the foundation of time, known those who would respond to him. He can look into Corinth and see the faces and names in people's lives of those he knows will believe. And so he says to Paul, stick around, stick it out. They need to hear the message. They need to come to Christ. When we present the gospel, we are presenting it to many people that God has already said, these are my people. They're going to be a part of my family. It's like speaking to friends and family about a foster child that we anticipate will be in our home. And it's true, they're not here yet. But we're confident that they, they, the call will come shortly and they'll be brought into our home. And, and so we prepare for their arrival. And, and Jesus says to Paul, that's what is happening in Corinth. There are people there who are going to respond to the gospel and become part of my family, so don't depart. And folks, when you and I share the gospel, we should never look at it as a burden, as a difficult thing to do, because God has already prepared people to respond who want to hear, who are eager, they have a need, they know that Christ is the answer, if they just would hear the, the message. And what a joy to see them respond. So Paul simply says, look, you should have commended me. This is the same idea of um, somebody asking you, hey, do you know any good auto mechanics or dentists or uh, plumbers or electricians? Not that they would all be for one job. 
But do you know any good guys that I could call? Good gals, good guys who really do a good job. Go, yeah, I can, I can recommend a few. He's saying, you should have done that for me, and, and, and it's irking me a bit that you didn't because I am not in any way inferior to these super apostles. I haven't burdened you with the demand for money. So Paul's goal was to unburden them, to seek them. Not something tangible, but something intangible. He wasn't after their money, their praise, their affirmation, their rewards, their kudos. He wanted them. So let me ask us, when we find ourselves in difficult relationships, especially with Christians, how are we to respond? How are we to react? Ask ourselves, where do they feel pressured? Where are they feeling overwhelmed? Where is this sense of emotional numbness in their life? And in humility, can I live the law of Christ and lend a hand? Can I come alongside them and have the attitude of Jesus, even though they may be sinning, to step into their lives and in humility count them as more important than myself? That's Paul's first point for us. Secondly, he says, if you want to be transformed and transformative in your relationships, you not only need to unburden others, but you need to uh, spend yourself and spend your resources to gain their souls. Now, this is Paul ratchets up his, his uh, discussion to a higher level here. He, he deepens it to something greater. So point two, we spend our resources and ourselves to gain the souls of others, and we see that in verses 15 through 18. Let's read them. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? But granting that, or literally, but let it be, I myself didn't burden you. I was crafty, you say, and got the better of you by deceit. Did I really take advantage of you through any of those whom I sent you? I urged Titus to go and sent the brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not act in the same spirit? Did we not take the same steps? So Paul adds to his argument here. He says, we need to be willing, in fact glad, to spend and be spent for the souls of others. He uses a very interesting Greek word here. It's a word that has a context that you would normally think wouldn't even show up in a passage like this. It's the word dapanasso, dapanasso. And it's used in other passages, like, for instance, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 5, verse 26, has this story of a woman who has been bleeding internally for 12 years. And Jesus comes to her town, and she decides, I want to be healed. And so she begins to follow him. And the crowd is huge, and she can hardly get even close to him, but finally she gets close enough to touch the hem of his garment. And it says in the text, Jesus immediately felt power coming out of him. And he stops and he says to his disciples, who touched me? <laughs> and they're saying, everybody's touching you. What do you mean? No, someone had faith to be healed. Who touched me? And she finally says, yeah, it was me. Mark says that she had spent all of her money on doctors to get well and was now worse. In other words, she had wasted in an extravagant way, everything she had. And it had benefited her not a bit. And so Jesus heals her. Luke uses this same word, dapanasso, 
in chapter 15, verse 14, where it talks about the, the prodigal son. And we all know the story, right? He tells his father, I want my inheritance, which in that culture was saying, I wish you were dead, give me my money. And he goes to a distant country. We know from scholars it was probably the city of Bethshan in the Decapolis, which was an incredibly Greek culture, and he wastes all of his money on wine, women, and music. And then it's gone. His friends depart because he's not paying for anything anymore. And where does he end up? In the pig trough with pig swine and, and their food. He extravagantly wastes all of his money with nothing to show for it. Paul takes that same verb and he uses it here. And we really have to ask the question, why? Doesn't that kind of spending run counter to everything he wanted for the Corinthians? To extravagantly waste, with no result to show for it, everything that you had. Because he says, I will spend and be spent. That's the exact same phrase. Doesn't he want them to be cleansed? Doesn't he want them to be renewed in their love and obedience? Doesn't he want them to grow in their obedience to God? Doesn't he want his investment of time and energy and spiritual power to grow them? And the answer is, of course he does. But the problem is, the outcome in chapter 12 is still in the balance. He doesn't know if all that he has written, all that he said, will actually turn the, the tide toward improvement rather than waste. But he says, even if everything I have spent, my time, my energy, the income from other churches, myself in relationship to you, even if it is only going to result in spiritual smoke and vapor, there's still something I want out of this, and that is your soul. I want your soul. If I can't see you grow as a church or grow as Christians, I want to know there's an eternal outcome here. Verse 15 records, uh, refers to this idea of suke, which is the immaterial part of us that has an eternal rootedness. We find in Matthew 10, 28, Jesus saying, don't fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Instead, Fear him who can cast both body and soul into hell. There's that eternal aspect of it. Be afraid of God who has this ultimate decision that you participate in. Do I go to heaven or hell? My soul will be a part of that decision. 1 Peter 1, 8-9, Peter writes, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, which is the salvation of your souls. This is the part we don't see, but it's the part that Paul was driven toward. And so Paul's perspective is this. His life was not goal-driven, which so often we, we talk about having our goals and planning, and as a life coach, that's what I encourage people toward. What are your goals? What do you want to do? Paul was not goal-driven to get something out of his work. He was good-driven to give something valuable to others, regardless of the outcome. That was the purpose of his life. And he had been praying and hoping desperately that all of his efforts were not in vain. And he wanted to be loved back as deeply as he had loved. Notice in verse 15, if I love you more, will you love me less? So this is an incredibly painful and loveless relationship for Paul. And yet he continues to love 
Instead of going backwards, he goes forward, he goes deeper. He loves them more. Didn't stop his actions because they were unwilling to respond to him. He uses this word parasoteros, which is an amazing word in the Greek language. It means much, much more abundantly. So, for instance, if someone were to come to you and say, well, I'd like to give you an In-N-Out gift card. Anybody like In-N-Out? Yeah, I do. It's one of my favorite places. So if they come to you and they say, hey, I want to give you an In-N-Out gift card. There you go. Now, would that be loving? Yeah, that's, that's not bad. It's better than a kick in the pants. But what if they said, well, here, I'd like to give you another gift card. Now, that'd be a little more loving, wouldn't it? But what if he said, here, have a third one? And a fourth one? And a fifth one? And a sixth one? And a seventh one? And we're stopping there because that's God's perfect number. (laughs) Would we consider that loving? We would consider that much, much more abundantly, exceedingly above what is normal. So if you come to the second service again, you may have another shot at that. All right? Paul says, hey, folks, Corinthians, I have poured out my life for you. This is just what Jesus did for us. I'm just imitating him. I want you to know how abundantly, by the way, you can share those with others if you want. I know you've got a good-sized family there, so. (laughs) Or keep them. Either way is fine. But Paul says, I want you to know that my love for you is this abundant, super great love of Jesus Christ. Will you love me less when I do this kind of thing in your life? You know, Paul had given them much more than an in-and-out burger, fries, and drink. He had given them the gospel, God's truth, God's love, God's hope. They were now insiders instead of outsiders. They were in the light instead of in the darkness. They were accepted by God rather than distanced from God. They were forgiven instead of condemned. They were indwelt by the Holy Spirit rather than excluded. All of these things through the gospel of Christ. And he refused to become bitter about their response. I like what uh, David Guzik has to say in his blog on this passage. He says, we can give and serve... And do it in any number of ways. But do we resent it when we give or serve and find no welcome response? No thankful applause, no joyous gratitude or change of life for the better. A good way to measure this is to see our reaction when our service is unappreciated. Do they resent it? Do we get out of sorts? Do we quit? Paul's service was unappreciated by the Corinthian Christians, even deeply and unfairly criticized. Yet he didn't resent it, stomp off in disgust, quit caring. Instead, he was very gladly spending himself and was spent for their very souls. They had been influenced by their culture. They had been influenced by some teachers who had the, a different gospel. And those teachers had actually said about Paul look, he's just using sleight of hand. He's just deceiving you. He's using loaded dice with you. In fact, the word deceit in this passage in verse 16 is the Greek word for dice, kubos, or cube. 
He's just playing with loaded dice. You're never going to win this game. You know, he's asked you for money for the Jews in Jerusalem. Are you kidding? Is he really going to deliver it to him? I don't think so. No, he's just lining his own pockets. He's buying a Mediterranean yacht. He's taking a world tour. He's setting himself to re retire in style all on your dime. And they were hearing this message, and Paul is combating it, and he's saying to them, this is not true. In fact, they use the same word in the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament, in Genesis that is used of Satan deceiving Eve. He's doing to you what Satan did to Eve. Don't you get it? But if they had thought a little bit further and deeper, they would have realized that no scammer ever looks out for a person's well-being. No scammer ever pays their own money. No scammer ever sacrifices themselves for others so that others can live a better life. That, that just doesn't happen. So Paul wasn't scamming them. Why was he living like this? Why should we live like this? Two reasons. Because giving less than our all meaning, means there is less transformation in others. God uses us in the lives of others to bring about change. He uses his word, he uses the Holy Spirit, but folks, he uses you and I in our relationships to be transformative. So that's number one. Giving less than our all means they get less transformation. Secondly, and most importantly, this is the response of what agape love does. This is what the love of Jesus does. And we see that again in Philippians 2, 5 through 8. So this adds on to Philippians 2, 4. Notice what it says. Have this mind among yourselves, which was in Christ Jesus. This is the law of Christ. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's agape love. That's that much, much more abundant love, that in-and-out card kind of love that goes way beyond the expected. And Paul is living this way. Now, we would be tempted to say, and I think rightly so, we would say, well, wait a second, that was his job, right? He was the apostle. I I'm just a Christian, an ordinary one at that. Am I supposed to be doing that as well? Well, yes, we are. Because in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, Paul writes this. Be imitators of me as I imitate Christ. There's this domino effect. Jesus lived that way. Paul lived that way. And he says to us, you should live this way too in your relationships. So, some questions for us. What of ourselves, what of our income, our savings, our resources, are we extravagantly wasting in the lives of others for their souls. Or maybe a better way of putting this, based on last week's message from Jeff, would be, what is God's gift of life to me? What has God given to me as an income? What savings has he provided for me? What resources has he placed in my life? Because it all belongs to God. That I can extravagantly waste and spend on others as a good steward of God's things. Now, remember, we don't want to waste those things. But God says, even if someone does not believe in me, I still love them. And he says the same for us. It's our job as well. Final step Paul gives us. He says, unburden others, 
spend and be spent for the welfare of their souls, and thirdly, build others up with a deep, selfless, and gracious love. We find that in the concluding verses, where he writes in verse 19, have you been thinking all along that we've been defending ourselves to you? Do you really feel like you're the judge and jury and we're the, the person on trial? He says, no. It is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ and all for your upbuilding, beloved. They are beloved. There is this deep, selfless, gracious love being extended to them to build them up. For I fear that perhaps when I come, I may find you not as I wish, and that you may find me not as you wish, that perhaps there may be quarreling and jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you. The results I wanted will not be present. I will be humbled because it hasn't happened the way I wanted And I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, which, by the way, is the word uh, pornos. Pornography has such a grip on our world today. And he says there needs to be this repentance of this impurity, sexual immorality, sensuality that they practiced. So Paul makes it clear. He says, look, I'm, I'm not just being reactionary. I'm not just speaking out against you because I've been hurt and wounded. My concern is not that you're thinking less of me. My concern is that you would be transformed, that there would be this transformation, this conformity to the the person of Christ. And he says, I am speaking openly before God in the sight of God. So let me move toward the end of this message with just some thoughts about that. He wrote earlier in 1 Corinthians 4 these words about being in the sight of God. He says, this is how one should regard us. So he's talking to the Corinthians saying, look, If you want to think about us at all, think about us this way. We are servants of Christ, and we are stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. If you're managing other people's money, you've got to be faithful with it. But with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. For I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, don't you pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes, the motives of the heart. And then each one will receive his commendation from God. How the modern church needs to hear this message. If we would just regard each other as servants and stewards of the mysteries of God, two things would happen. Number one, we would judge each other less often and less harshly. We would. We would be reminded that our judge, our ultimate judge, is Jesus. I am not the judge and jury on other people's lives. They are not of mine. And I think we would be more willing to leave our injustices to him rather than demanding that pound of flesh here and now rather than burdening people with our rights and our demands. We would trust that he would make things right, both now and in the future. In fact, Romans 14.4 is an interesting companion text. He says, Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. He says, Look, your friend, your family member, that individual who irritates you, who rubs you the wrong way, who's been difficult and hard to get along with, is not your servant. 
He belongs to Jesus if he's a fellow Christian. And Jesus will ultimately judge him, so you get off his back. And by the way, Jesus will make him stand or her stand because he is our faithful Lord and judge. He will be upheld. So I think, number one, we would relax more, we would love more, we would criticize less, we would come alongside more. And secondly, and just as importantly, each of us would become more and more concerned with our own behavior and obedience. God, how am I doing? Because my motives, my thoughts, my words, my behavior will ultimately be evaluated by you on that final day. And I will stand before you all alone to account for how I took the gospel of Christ, the foundation that Christ gave me, and how I built on it. Folks, my mom came to Christ at the age of 13 because of that message. In her Dutch Reformed church in Michigan, she was sitting on the back row with a whole bunch of her girlfriends. And my mom is a, a wonderful lady, but at that point in her life, she was a little bit pushback against you know, Christian things. And the speaker said to her, someday you will stand before Christ all by yourself. And she said to herself, oh no, my dad the deacon will be right next to me. And the speaker said, and your dad the deacon won't be right next to you. I was like, what? Boy, did that catch her attention. You'll be all alone. Well, I'll have my friends, and your friends won't be with you. Well, my mom won't, no, your mom won't be with you. And it was like God was just reading her mind and going down the list, and the conviction of the Holy Spirit hit her, and she said, dear God, I want to stand before you in the righteousness of Jesus. And it was that night she gave her life to Christ. Folks, you and I, if we become more aware of this reality, I think we would become less critical of others. And we would become more concerned with my soul and how it will stand before Christ. Look at 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 15. We're going to begin to wrap it up here. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, Paul writes, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building on it. You're growing in your faith, but let each one take care how he builds on it. You yourself. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. So we have this foundation in our lives, which is our faith in Jesus Christ and his character and his promises and his power to build us. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest. For the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. So in our salvation, we are confident we are saved in the purpose of Christ by, faith through, uh, by grace through faith. It's not something we can earn, but we build on it in a certain way in our lives. And he says, this day will expose everything that we've done. At verse 14, if the work that anyone has built on this foundation survives, you receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, they live their life solely for themselves. He or she will suffer loss eternally. There'll be something that's missing, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So Paul says simply this. He says, look, we have to live our lives in the sight of God by the word of God. And he says, that's what I've been giving you folks. And I want you to understand that it's for your upbuilding, dearly beloved people. And he says, this is my goal, is to build you up in love because Christ watches all that we say and do and he empowers us through his spirit. That was his goal. Folks, that is my goal 
whenever I preach and teach and encourage. I want people to be built up. That is the goal of all of our elders, our associate pastors, our ministry directors here at Trinity, is to build you up. So the question for us then becomes, who are we building up? Imitate me as I imitate Christ. In your life, who is it that you are reaching into in love and saying, let me help you grow in your faith? Is it through personal relationships? Is it as a mom with your kids, which is such an important role in our world today? Is it through a dad in your relationships with people in in the world around you as a father? And, And dads, we need you to be men of God today. Who are you investing in? Who are you building in love? Unburdening them spending yourself, spending all that you have into their lives so that they become changed and transformed. And that's Paul's purpose here. It isn't so much to be responding to the critical aspects around him. It's to say, this is our, this is our goal. This is our purpose. This is the good that we do. Now, interestingly, and I like this as a professor, he gives us a final exam next week. I hope you'll come. Because this is an easy one to pass. It's an A. If two things are happening in our lives, number one, if we are growing as a disciple and disciple-making Christian of Jesus, if we're growing, if we see a track record of old sins falling away, much like the list he gives us here, and it's a pretty good-sized list, right? If those are falling away and new habits are becoming more prominent, I often will tell new believers, from now on you should have new sins. Right. Now, we're called to holiness, right? This is the pursuit, is to be holy like God is holy. But we also know we're never going to be perfected in this life. That's a gift of heaven, perfection. And so the sins that we notice in our lives should not be the same old sins we've always dealt with. Those should be falling away. And as we become more holy and exposed to the light of who God is and the light of who Christ is, we will see new sins exposed. Deeper, more treasured sins, those we need to deal with. And as we become even more holy, we will see new sins exposed in our lives, and we need to deal with those. So the sins that we have should always be new in the sense that we're just realizing we have this in our lives. None of us is perfect yet. So how do you pass this test? Which, by the way, if you want to see the test, it's in 2 Corinthians 13.5. Take a look there. Examine yourselves. To see whether you are in the faith, test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? He says, after all of this, we're going to simply say, how are you going to pass this course? And by the way, it's an open book test. The book of your life and mine. As we open it up, and God says, are you growing? And secondly... Are we being transformed? Are we being transformative in our most challenging relationships? And this is where the test truly determines how well we're doing. It's not in the easy relationships where we get along well with people and they're bucket fillers instead of bucket drillers. It's in the difficult ones. Are we unburdening them? Are we seeking the relationship, not what we get out of it? Are we spending and being spent? Even if it doesn't produce the result we're hoping for, are we still giving and giving and giving of all that God has given us? And are we building others up out of a deep, selfless, and gracious love for them?
In the next few minutes, we're going to be taking communion together. And as we do that, Jared is going to be reminding us of the power of communion. It's a moment in our lives where we reaffirm God's covenant with us. That what he did on the cross has totally paid for our sins when we believe in that and accept it as a gift of forgiveness. And it begins this transformative process of laying aside old sins, seeing the new ones, laying them aside, seeing other new sins, laying them aside, moving toward the holiness of Christ, living out the law of Christ. That is the heartbeat of communion. And he'll be explaining that for us. But before we get there, would you just pray with me? And let's ask God to confirm in our hearts and minds what he wants us to take home from this time in the Word together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this has been a challenging passage for me this week because my human tendency is to react out of my view of life, out of what I value in life, what I think I expect should be given to me out of life. Father, the humanness in me still wrestles with the great love of God. And God, I want this passage to change my heart more and more. I want to become more transformative in the way I respond to others. Father, help me with that. Help us with that. God, none of us is perfect. We all struggle with sin. We struggle to be the persons that you want us to be. And the more we allow your spirit to fill us, to dwell in us, to live through us, Father, we will see those changes. But God, we struggle to even do that. So please help us. Father, we pray that Every moment this week, your Holy Spirit would bring this passage back to us. And in those moments of of challenge and difficulty, Father, help us to live by his power. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as Doug said, can you hear me? All right, there we go. As Doug said, we're going to receive communion, so if you have not uh, received your communion packet, please feel free to grab that. And if you need some help, just raise your hand. And uh, someone around you would love to help serve you in that way. So uh, please make sure you have that. As Doug was speaking, my mind was just really uh, fixed on what Paul said in Philippians chapter 2. And I want to read that just again because I think it just sets the stage really well for uh, what communion is all about and what we're going to be receiving in just a few seconds here. Philippians chapter 2, in verse 5, Paul says, Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, Jesus emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant and taking on the likeness of of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason, God has highly exalted him and given him the name above every other name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God and the Father. And so as we get ready to receive communion, we do so to remember uh, who Jesus is and what he has done for us. On the night 
that uh, Jesus would uh, be betrayed. And before he would go to the cross, he gathered with his 12 apostles and he told them that as they were preparing to eat the Passover meal, that those uh, elements of the Passover were now going to have a deeper and fuller and richer meaning and they would all be pointing to him and they would be used as a, a sign of remembrance. First, he took the, the bread and he took it and he broke it and he told his disciples to eat it for it is his body which is broken and given uh, for them. And then he took the, the cup and he said, this cup is the, the blood of the new covenant which will be poured out for you. And so throughout the ages, those who have named the name of Christ, those who have done what Paul has said, which is confess that Jesus is Lord, we have gathered around the Lord's table to receive and to remember the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus, going to the cross, dying for your sins and for my sins. Uh, something that we often say here at Trinity is that this is not the table of Trinity Church. This is the table of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as Philippians says, if you have bowed the knee and you have placed your faith in Jesus, and whether or not Trinity Church is your home church, you are invited to partake with us. But I want to share this. If you have not yet placed your faith in Jesus, if you have not bowed your knee, if you have not confessed that Jesus is Lord and placed your faith in him, uh, I would suggest, I would counsel you to wait on receiving communion and come and talk to somebody about what it means to place your faith in Christ and to follow him. And so, uh, beloved brothers and sisters, would you please grab your communion packet and uh, go ahead and tear the first portion back and grab the bread here. As I said, Jesus, on the night with his disciples, he took the bread, he broke it, and he said, do this in remembrance of me. Let us partake in remembrance of Christ. And then the cup, which he said is the blood of the new covenant. And I love that. I've been reading through the book of Hebrews and all throughout the writer of Hebrews has been talking about how we are partakers of a new and better covenant based upon better promises for the forgiveness of sins. So as we partake of the juice, let us remember that Jesus has shed his blood for the forgiveness of all of our sins. Let us do this in remembrance of him. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you for the ultimate sacrifice of sending your son Jesus. And even as Paul said that he was willing to spend all for these believers in Corinth. And really he's just following in the footsteps of Christ who, who gave everything, who gave all that he had, who uh, ascended from heaven, came in the form of a man, died on the cross, for our sins, for our forgiveness, for our reconciliation. And even as Paul says in, in Romans 5 that he did that, Lord, while we were sinners. He took the, the first step forward, Lord, even when we were running away. There's nothing that we could ever do, nothing we could ever say that will ever, ever, ever earn or, or, or receive that salvation because of our work. So we thank you for 
the new covenant, the new covenant of grace. We thank you that we have been accepted and forgiven by Jesus, by who he is and what he has done for us. And we could sing uh, for all of eternity and we could praise you for all of eternity. We can know that we are in right relationship with you for all of eternity. And so we give you all the praise, all the glory for now and forever. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, would you stand and we're gonna worship the Lord together to close out our time.